Well, let me offer us a, a brief word of prayer. We'll have the prayer of confession actually during the Lord's Supper. Uh, so let me offer just a brief word of prayer now as we prepare, prepare to hear God's word. Would you bow and pray with me? Father, indeed, we give you thanks and praise for your goodness and grace. Thank you for how you have watched over us this past week. Thank you for how you are always providing for us, always keeping us. Thank you for holding us fast, not letting us go. Thank you for bringing us, Lord, to this appointed time when we get to dig into your word now and hear your voice. We pray and trust that you have been pleased with our worship thus far. Be pleased now with our worship and listening. Give us ears to hear your word. Give us eyes to see your glory. Give us hearts to believe. Keep us, O Lord, by your word, we pray. Change us by your word. Strengthen us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, beloved, turn with me to the ninth chapter of the book of Esther. In God's kindness, we have come to the end of this great book. We'll be thinking about Esther chapter 9 and Esther chapter 10. And if you join us for the first time, let me just do something of a very quick review of what's happened in this book. In chapter 1, the book opens by showing us a king, the king of the the, Media, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, a man by the name of Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. He's fabulously wealthy. He throws a party for six months. And at the end of this drunken party for six months, um, he has a conflict with his wife, Queen Vashti. He calls her to come parade herself before his male guests, and she refused rightly. And so then the men sort of get together and they decide, what we're going to do since the queen has disobeyed the king? If the queen disobeys the king, then all the women in all the land will begin to disobey their husbands. And so in this sort of spirit of patriarchy and male oppression of women, they pass a law that require all the women in the empire to respect their husbands, honor their husbands, obey their husbands. That's how we start. Well, chapter two is about four years later. And the king still doesn't have a queen. And so now he's surrounded by some young guys, his servants, who say, you know what? What you ought to do is have a beauty contest and gather up all the young, beautiful virgins throughout the empire. Come and choose your queen from among them. And so we move from a kind of um, oppression of women to the objectification of women in the treatment of women as objects of male lust. And this man tries out these young women until he comes to a young Jewish girl, woman, named Esther. Esther is an orphan. She had been raised by her, uh, her cousin, Mordecai. Uh, he raised her as his own daughter. And Mordecai is this very righteous Jewish man. And the Jewish people are exiles in the Persian Empire. They have been conquered. They were taken away into captivity uh, in Babylon first. And then Babylon fell um, to the Persian Empire. And they're still there as exiles. And this Mordecai, he works really as a kind of city official. He works in the king's gate. He kind of has his ear on the ground for the, all of political goings-ons and things of that sort. And uh, when, his, when his daughter cousin is taken into this beauty contest, he tells her, don't tell anybody that you're Jewish. 
And while she's in there, there's a year to prepare those women to see the king. And while that's going on, Mordecai hears that there is a plot to kill the king. And so Mordecai tells Esther, get word to the king that there are a couple of servants are going to try and kill you. So they investigate that. They find out that it's true and they, they handle those servants. But the king at that point never thanks Mordecai. Esther becomes queen or she is queen. Fast forward in the story a little bit. There's a man named Haman. Haman is descended from a people called the Amalekites. They are the old enemies of the Jews. We don't know where Haman came from. We don't, we don't get the sense that he has any qualification to be an official, but he rises to number two in the kingdom. Looks like he's probably paid his way to that position. He, he gets the king to pass a law that requires everybody to bow down to him. He's the kind of man that has to force people to respect him. Well, there's one man in the whole empire that won't do that. That's Mordecai. Whenever he sees Mordecai or Mordecai sees him, he refuses to bow to Haman. And that angers Haman so much so that all of his wealth and his 10 sons and family and all of his power, he counts that as nothing as long as this man Mordecai, the Jew whom he hates, doesn't bow to him. And so he launches a plan to kill not just Mordecai, get this, to kill all the Jews in all the land. That on a certain day, uh, this law would require or allow anyone who wished to harm the Jews to kill them and to take their things. Sounds a lot like the Holocaust, doesn't it? And so, as you can imagine, the Jewish people, well, they, they, they feel all the things. They're upset. They're sad. They're angry. They're wondering, where will deliverance come from? So Mordecai goes to Esther in sackcloth and ashes, mourning at the king's gate, which was illegal. He could have been put to death for that. And Esther hears that her, her cousin father is out there mourning that way. She sends some clothes to him, tells him to clean up. He refuses. And she wants to know what's going on. And he tells her about this law that Haman has gotten the king, has bribed the king to pass this law to kill all the Jews on one day. So we've gone from oppressive patriarchy to the objectification of women to really sort of ethnic hatred and racism and religious persecution. And he tells Esther, you've got to go to the king and get the king to stop this. Esther's afraid and, and we hear those famous words. And, and when Mordecai tells her, listen, um, if you don't go, God will raise up a deliverer, deliverance for us from some other place and, and, and you and your household won't be saved. And, and Esther said, well, I'll go to the king. If I perish, I perish. Tell the people to pray. So she prays and fasts for three days. And finally, she has an idea. She goes to the king and she invites the king and Haman to a, a feast that she prepared in her home, in her part of the palace. And they come to the feast and Haman is all swole. He starts dropping names. Yeah, I had dinner with the king and I had dinner with the queen. And he's sort of puffed up about how great things are. But he's still seething in hatred, wanting Mordecai and the Jews killed. At the feast, the king says, tell me what you want, Esther. I'll give you anything up to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, I'll tell you what, why don't you guys come back tomorrow? I'll prepare another feast uh, and, and, and then I'll tell you. And so they agree. And that night, as God would have it, the king couldn't sleep. He's up late. And so he started having his officials read to him the history of his, of his kingdom, of his reign. And as it just so happens, they land on the part where it's been recorded that Mordecai told the king about the plot to kill him and that the king's life was spared. And the king kind of came to his senses and said, wait a minute, did we ever do anything for Mordecai? 
They were like, well, it's not, nothing here in the books. Standing outside the king's chambers is Haman. He's come to ask the king permission to hang Mordecai the next morning. And the king says, is anybody in the court? The servant said, Mordecai or, or Haman's out there. He said, bring him in. So when Haman comes into the scene, comes into the room, this wonderful scene, and the king says, without naming any names, he says, now, what should the king do for the person he wished to honor? And Haman, thinking it's all about him, right? He gets swollen in his pride. He's like, you know what you ought to do? Let him wear the king's robes. Let him wear a crown. Let him ride the king's horse and parade him through the town with one of your best servants yelling out to everyone. This is how the king delights to honor the person whom he respects. The king was like, bet. Do that for Mordecai. Haman is like livid, but he has to do it. And that's when the story begins to turn. That next day, they take Haman to the second feast with Esther. The king asks Esther again, what do you want up to half of my kingdom? And Esther says, basically, there's a man who's seeking to kill me and my people and to exterminate us all. And the king says, who? And Esther, in the famous scene, is this evil, wicked man, Haman. The king beside himself goes out into the garden, tries to get himself together, comes back in in a few minutes, and Haman is begging the queen for his life. He's falling down on the couch with the queen begging for his life, and the king is like, oh, you're you going to attack my wife right here in front of me? They hung him on the scaffold that they had prepared for Mordecai. Now, after Haman's dead, they're still in danger because the law is still on the books, right? The king's law can't be revoked. And so Haman, or excuse me, Mordecai and Esther, they decide we, what we need is a new law. We need a law that allows the Jews to protect themselves against anyone who would seek to attack them and to destroy them. And so they busily write this law in Esther chapter 8, and they send that law out to the 127 provinces in the empire, uh, an empire that stretches all the way from Ethiopia uh, to India to get the word out to the Jews that, okay, we can't change that first law, but there's a new law now that you may stand your ground, if you will, and defend yourself against those who attack you. And that's where we are when we come to Esther chapter 9. So look with me in Esther chapter 9. As we look at 9 and 10, here's, here's the big idea. When God reverses your oppression, Remember God's deliverance and respect the people God used to do it. When God reverses your oppression, remember that you have been delivered and respect the persons that God uses to deliver you. If you're taking notes this morning, we've got three points to the sermon. Three points as an outline here. Number one, we're going to see that God reverses the Jews' situation. We'll see that in verses 1 to 19. God reverses the Jews' situation. Number two, we're going to see that the Jews remember God's deliverance. They remember God's deliverance, verses 20 to 32. And then number three, the world respects Mordecai. The world respects Mordecai, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 10. Look with me in God's word. 
Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on all of them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshendatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adaliah and Aradatha and Parmashta and Arasai and Aradai and Vizatha. The 10 sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness for gladness and feasting as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. 
But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel, and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth. At their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Medea and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Amen. The first thing we want to see is that God reverses the Jews' situation. As we said, our text opens in verse 1, on the very day that Haman had planned to have all the Jews destroyed. Haman himself had been killed on the 23rd day of Sylvan. That's about eight months earlier, according to Esther chapter 8. Verse 9, and in those eight and a half months or so, the the Jews had been busily writing this new law and distributing it across the empire so that Jews spread out all over the the empire would know that they could defend themselves. They did that as quickly as they could. They spread the law as fast as they could. Now it's nine months later, and that dreaded day has come. Verse 1, look there again says the enemies of the Jews hope to gain the mastery over them. Mastery means domination, means to rule over the Jews, to oppress and to control and ultimately to kill the Jews. But a funny thing happened. Verse 1 goes on to say the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. As one scholar puts it, the victims became the victors. The tables were turned. The tail became the head. The the first became last and the last became first. This is one of the things our great God does when he delivers his people. He reverses the state of things. The word here used for reverse refers not only to the change in a Jew's outward situation, but it also has connotations of a change in their sort of internal emotional state. 
we're going to see a complete deliverance. Notice how complete this reversal was. We see it in three things. Number one, we see that it's a reversal in public power. Verse two, the Jews gathered in self-defense, but before they even had a chance to defend themselves, notice the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. Suddenly the Jews went from being kind of publicly insignificant or publicly despised people to being a people who are publicly feared and respected. That phrase that fear had fallen on them is used many times in the Bible to talk about the fear of the Lord falling on people. You got you get the sense then that something divine is happening behind these events, even though God's name is not used. So there's a reversal of public power. There's a reversal, number two, of political power. We see that in verses three and four. All of the officials at every level, governors and satraps and officials across the empire, notice they helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. Mordecai is now second in command after the king. The verse says there in verses three and four that he was growing in power. His esteem and his respect, his clout is growing and growing, and all of the other leaders are responding to it. It's an interesting contrast between Mordecai and Haman, isn't it? Haman had to have a law to make people respect him. But Mordecai, by his character and by his influence, is earning respect. It's a reversal of political power. And notice number three, there's a reversal of punitive power, the the power to punish. The Jews went from a people destined to death to a people with the power to punish those who attacked them. That's what's happening in verses 5 to 19. Verse 5 is a key verse there. Notice, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In the capital of Susa, they initially killed 500 on that day, that first day, on the 13th along with the 10 sons of of Haman. You see that there in verses 5 to 10. On that same day, verse 11 tells us that the report went to the king. The king wants to know how it's going. He seems to have been pleased. that There were 500 who who had purposed to kill his wife and her people who had been put to death. And he's wondering, I wonder how it's going in the rest of the province. And he asked Esther, you know, what more can I do? 500 have been killed in Susa, but it seems like the plot hasn't stopped. This is why Esther requests a second day. And you'll notice that on that second day, verse 15, another 300 were killed there in Susa where this plot had been hatched. And verses 16 to 19 tell us that throughout the whole empire, some 75,000 men were put to death for attacking the Jews and seeking to kill all the Jews. So if there's 127 provinces, that's roughly 500 and some people in each province on average who are put to death because of their hatred and their murderous heart toward God's people. This is punitive power, the ability to punish. But notice now, the Jews were careful to punish their enemies And to be sure any plans to harm them in the future were brought to nothing. And even though they had the power to take the possessions of their enemies, did you see it? Did you hear it when we read through it uh, a moment ago? Each time we're told three places they did not take the plunder. 
This was not about a power grab. This was not about getting wealthy on the the sort of reverse oppression of a people. This was about dignity and self-respect and a right to life. We might say today, Jewish lives matter. This was them taking a stand to protect the fact that they had a right to live and that their life should be marked by dignity and flourishing, not plunder. Sometimes God's people must wait for God's deliverance. Deliverance has come here now to the Jews. But remember, the events of this book actually cover about 10 years. So that deliverance didn't come right away. And to the naked eye, sometimes it looks like God ain't doing nothing. The naked eye, sometimes it looks like nothing's really happening to change our situation. This is why we need a trained spiritual eye. We need the eyes of faith. Because the Bible tells us that God does justice every day. But the wait for God's justice, the wait for deliverance can feel like a a test of faith to us Christians, can't it? Remember the story of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18. Remember Jesus tells his story about a widow who has an enemy and she's looking for justice, but she's going to a judge, the Bible says, who doesn't care anything about God or man. And she keeps going and she keeps going and she keeps going asking for justice until this judge says, you know what? This woman driving me crazy. I I better give her what she wants. And so he does. He gives us justice. And this is the punchline that Jesus gives us in Luke chapter 18, verses 7 and 8. The Lord says there, says there, will not God give justice to his elect, his chosen people? who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You see what Jesus is saying there? That God will most certainly give his people justice. He he may have his people crying out day and night, but he will give justice. He will give it speedily as he defines it. But the question is, will we be believing in him when he comes? Will he find faith on the earth? So as the church waits on the Lord for justice and particular groups of people who might be suffering oppression wait on the Lord, we must not give in to unbelief and faithlessness. We must fight the good fight of faith and not despair. We must remember that hope is a practice. Hope is a practice. And we must practice hope in God or the enemies of righteousness will take more than just our position or our lives. They will take something from us that is vital to our relationship with God. Faith, hope, trust. We must not give that to them. Wait with hope for the reversals that God does for his people. Now, as we wait, we should also make some, we should sort of understand something about the nature of power, too. Notice one other thing about the Jews while they wait on God's reversal. 
Notice that the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Over those who hated them. You see that in verse 1? They did not dominate the entire society. They are still exiles. They are still outside of their homeland in Jerusalem. They are still spread through the the Medo-Persian empire. But with respect to their actual enemies, those who hated them, God protects them and delivers them. The Jews of Esther's day have controls over their enemies to protect themselves, not to exploit people. They do not have political power for political power's own sake. The goal was not power. The goal was peace and protection. The goal was dignity. Christians would do well to note this today. Christians today are too often after political power as the goal. We're too often wanting to be rulers over everyone when we are called to be servants to everyone. Beloved, a lust for power is worldly, not biblical. And perhaps it is a more serious temptation in a city like Washington, D.C., the capital of political power in our country. Beloved, sometimes we have power or have access to power, and it corrupts us, doesn't it? Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. When we have power, we too often don't want to use that power for justice for the hated and the persecuted. We we far too often want to use it in self-interest and greed. I mean, if we had been among the Jews in Esther's day, maybe we would have taken the plunder. Maybe we would have seized the advantage, not just for righteousness' sake, but for selfishness' sake. It's a crazy temptation, a powerful temptation. And and we need to be careful as Christians with all of our sort of interactions with worldly power, knowing its temptation to corrupt. That was not the case with God's people in Esther's day. May it not be the case with God's people in our day. God reversed their situation completely. Now notice the Jews then remember God's deliverance. That's what we see in verses 20 to 32. Verses 17 to 19 tells us a a little bit of a wrinkle in Esther's day. The people who lived in the country, they defended themselves on the 13th, and then they celebrated on the 14th just as the original law had been written. But you recall that Esther had asked for permission for a second day in Susa for the Jews to defend themselves, and they did on the 14th. And so the Jews in the capital didn't celebrate their deliverance until the 15th. So you had sort of country Jews uh, celebrating on one day and city Jews celebrating on the second day. And for the first time in human history, the country folks were first, right? And the city folks were late. And so there's a problem with when do we celebrate? That's why Mordecai writes in verse 20. He wrote to obligate them to celebrate God's deliverance on both days, the 14th and the 15th, and to do so year by year, verse 21. And this feast was to have three purposes. Number one, this feast was designed to help them with remembrance. 
to help them remember. Verse 22, to remember the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, remember the reversal and the relief that God gave you when he delivered you. And maybe we don't think about this much, but beloved, I want to suggest to you as Christians that remembering is a vital spiritual discipline. That remembering is a very important aspect of our Christian lives. When we forget God's deliverance, we forget who God is and why we should love him. That's why testimony is so critical. Our testimonies are small stories of God's deliverance in our lives, his deliverance perhaps of uh, of us from sin and from judgment or his deliverance in some other way. And as we tell those stories, we, we remember and we feel again the relief and the rejoicing that comes from knowing that our God is for us and not against us. The Jews were to remember God's deliverance in these feast days. They were to always remember the reversals that God had performed in their lives. But not just remember, number two, these feasts had the purpose of rejoicing, of rejoicing. Verse 22, the Jews were to make them days of feasting and gladness. So, so unlike the Day of Atonement, where the, the sort of major theme was the confession of sin and the, the forgiveness of sin, now here with this particular feast, the, the emphasis is on lightness and gladness and rejoicing and abundance. And they were to hold this feast every year. It was to become a part of their regular yearly liturgy their pattern of worship, their pattern of rest, their pattern even of self-care by remembering of God's deliverance and rejoicing in it. But number three, these feasts had the purpose of repentance. That was verse 22 again. Says that these were days of sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And that's not a throwaway line. The emphasis on sharing and giving to the poor made this really a time of love and community and of continuing justice. I mean, they couldn't remember God's deliverance of them as a people without remembering that there were people among them who were still poor who themselves needed another kind of deliverance, another kind of help, who were in need. I mean, how could God's people celebrate God's reversal of their poor situation without remembering those of God's people who were still in some kind of poverty? It would be hypocrisy. In fact, notice this, beloved. It was that very kind of hypocrisy that got them sent into exile in the first place. It was that very hypocrisy of worshiping God in outward forms while committing the injustice of oppressing and neglecting the poor that God had objected to so strenuously that he would send them into exile. If you like, you can write this down and look there with me now. Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5 tells the story. 
In Amos chapter 5, God rebukes Israel in verse 11 because they trample on the poor and exact taxes from them. And then he goes on in verse 12 and, and he rebukes them because they afflict the righteous. They take a bribe and they turn the needy away in the gate. So, so part of Israel's whole problem was they were a community, a country, a people who were habitually not just neglecting, but abusing the marginalized and the poor. And so God says in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, these words, he says, I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But, verse 24, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That was God's calling them to repentance. But because they did not let justice roll down like waters and because of their idolatry, God promised in Amos 5, 27, I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. God kept his word. They did not repent. He sent them into exile in Babylon, in Medo-Persia, and that's where they are right now. There are people who were used to poisoned feasts because they neglected the poor. But now, here, in exile, in Esther's time, God delivers the Jews. And that deliverance is so complete that they seem to be breaking the old habits of neglecting the poor. The Jews of Esther's day start a new feast that, notice, corrects their old ways by including the poor. This kind of repentance is the kind of feast that God takes pleasure in. This repentance is the kind of worship that God accepts. He loves it when his his people turn back to him. He loves it when sinners turn away from their sin and turn to him. And verses 23 to 32 tell us how the people dedicated themselves to keeping these feasts. They named it Purim because Haman had cast pur or lots. Haman had rolled dice, so to speak, to determine when he would try to kill the Jews. And so they are now playing on that word to name this feast, to help them remember and rejoice and repent. Verse 27 says, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them to keep these two days without fail. They are, as an entire people, committed to this. And not only the Jews commit themselves to this feast, but Queen Esther and Mordecai, they wrote a second letter committing the law of Persia to confirming Purim. So the celebration of God's deliverance became both a cultural and a legal observance for people once hated and marginalized in society. Remembrance, rejoicing, and repentance became a part of their way of life. The same thing should happen with us at the Lord's Supper. 
during the Lord's Supper as we feast by faith. We remember God's ultimate work of deliverance through his son. We remember the Son of God crucified on the cross of Calvary. We remember his death and we remember his resurrection all to save us from our sins. And so intimate are we with that sacrifice that we are feeding by faith on the one who was sacrificed. We symbolically eat his flesh and drink his blood and are nourished by faith. And at the Lord's Supper, don't we rejoice? We rejoice that all our sorrowful condition have been reversed to the amazing status of sons and daughters of God, sons and daughters of the Most High. And we remember one another as together we take this supper. Not like the Corinthians leaving people out, getting drunk at the supper, eating all the food and the latecomers being left out. But no, discerning the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing our unity and our oneness. We take this together. We stop and we repent for not discerning the Lord's body. And we remember one another. And it ought to be a place where we remember the poor. This is why in the history of the Lord's church and the history of the Lord's Supper, many local churches would often have special collections at the Lord's Supper in order to supply the needs of the poor. So the feast of the Lord's Supper, which we'll take a little bit later this morning, and remembering God's deliverance, those things define us. Deliverance and feasting. They build our faith. They strengthen our relationship with God. They feed us so that we don't faint on the way to the final feast, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So before we go on, we ought to maybe consider one one final thing. Maybe we should just reflect on it for a moment on what these feasts tell us about God himself. Feasting, you realize, runs through the book of Esther. Esther 1 begins with a a pagan celebration, a drunken festival that ends in divorce and royal turmoil. Esther chapters 5 to 7 feature two feasts where Esther privately dines with the king and Haman and confronts Haman in order to save her people. Now in Esther 9, the book ends with two more days of feasting where God's people remember what he's done for them and saving them from their enemies. So feasting is running through this book. But not just the book of Esther. You realize that feasting is running through the entire Bible. The Passover feast in Exodus celebrates God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. When they are out in God. He gives them other feasts, like the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles and things of that sort, to celebrate, for example, the the harvest that he gives them as they plant and as they reap. We come on down to the New Testament, and the first time we see Jesus performing a miracle, it's at a wedding feast, Cain of Galilee. And then when he is crucified and buried and resurrected, what does he leave us but a feast? The Lord's Supper to eat together as a church while we wait for him to come. 
And when we come to the end of the book in Revelation, we see the Lord come and we see him gather his people to the wedding supper of the Lamb. When all gods redeemed for all time, dressed in white like a bride, are gathered together to the bridegroom to finally and forever be with our Savior. And we will feast. We will dine. God delights to feast with us. Doesn't matter the ingredients. He he takes the bitter herbs from the Passover, the first fruits of the harvest fields, bread and wine from sacrifice, and he turns those ingredients into the richest, most meaningful, most intimate times of love between him and us. And the fact that it's feasting points to God's endless generosity and God's superabounding joy. He's not stingy. He's not begrudging. He's not sour. God is happy, and he is happy sharing himself with us. And he is happy sharing all that he has with us. Perhaps this is why the Bible says that all of heaven rejoices when even one sinner repents. And perhaps this is why God gives us parables that give us insight into his heart. For example, the the parable of the prodigal son who runs off, spends his inheritance, treats his dad like he was dead, wakes up in 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 a pig pen, comes to his senses, the Bible says, and goes back to his father. And that old man lifts his robes and runs out and grabs him and says, kill the fattened calf. Let's feast. For my son who was dead is now alive again angels of heaven break out in song. The saints in glory rejoice. I'm convinced they're shouting in heaven because there's joy in heaven. And that joy flows over most fully from the very heart of God himself, the fountain of goodness, the river of grace. Oh, when we see God feasting with his people, I think we're meant to understand that he welcomes us gladly, abundantly, extravagantly. And we eat with him and enjoy him. And he enjoys us. And that whether we are here or in glory, we're meant to feast, beloved, to feast with our God. He has spread a table before us even in the presence of our enemies, that we might feast with him. Which brings us to our final point. The world respects Mordecai. God reverses the Jews' situation. The Jews remember God's deliverance. Now the world is going to respect and remember Mordecai. We see that in the last few lines of the book. Verse 1 tells us that King Ahasuerus is still powerful, still rich. He's taxing the land even out to the coastland. So we're getting a, a final quick glimpse again of how vast and powerful this man's empire was. But right alongside the king, we get a final mention of Mordecai. Look there in verse 2. We're told of the king's power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. This is striking. Both the story of the king's reign 
and the story of Mordecai are recorded in the chronicles of the kings of the Medea and Persian Empire. Uh, To be mentioned in the same breath as a king is a tremendous indication of the respect Mordecai held in the eyes of the world. As verse 3 tells us one final time, Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. When we read that, I think we are meant to be stunned that one so seemingly insignificant could be raised up so high by a God who isn't even mentioned in the book. We're meant to be stunned by this rags to riches story. And here's the point. With God, the rejected may become the respected. That's what God does with us. Our lives might have been like Mordecai's. He was an exile. He had no real status in the world. His life was threatened by his enemies, and and he really didn't have any recourse to power. He was rejected in so many ways. And yet before God is done with him, he is beside the king, the most respected person in the known world. That's what God does with people who are busted and disgusted, with people who are broken, people who are in many ways, perhaps even ashamed of themselves. The Lord is able to make all things new and to lift us up. Now, he's respected not just with the king or the Persians, but Mordecai was respected among his people as well. Verse 3 finishes by saying, he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. I love that, that way that the story ends. I love the way the story ends. It doesn't end with that first phrase, he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. There's no period right there. And I'm glad because as a Christian people, we're a little bit too fascinated with celebrities, aren't we? If it was just greatness and popularity, right, that made him sort of known among the people, if he was just famous for being famous, if he was just a YouTube influencer, then his, his notoriety would be shallow. It would be hollow. It would be superficial. And if the people respected him for that, for for that kind of superficial influence, they too would be superficial. And how often does the Christian church fawn over celebrities who say that they are converted? How often does the Christian church roll out the red carpet for people who um, aren't proven yet as Christians? Because we love celebrities. We love the popular. And we want to be popular. And God has to put that to death in us. Notice why Mordecai is respected. It's the last phrase. Look there again with me. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. If there were a recipe for greatness, there it is. Mordecai was popular and great, not because of his high-ranking official status, but because he used that to seek the welfare, the blessing, the well-being of his people, and he spoke peace to them. Right now, we're not reading the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Medea and Persia. We're not reading secular literature right now. We are now reading sacred literature. 
Men and women write books about famous people all the time, and that's great. But we should take note when God in his book writes about someone being great. It's one thing to be written about in secular books. It's another thing to be written about and remembered in the book authored by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Notice what scripture brings our eyes to. Selflessness, sacrifice, solidarity, giving for the welfare of others. That's why Mordecai is great. He sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to them. And that's why Mordecai is a very short commercial for Jesus. A very quick glimpse into the character and the heart and the life and the mission of the Son of God. See, Mordecai points us to a coming king. And that coming, that coming king once said, Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's why Jesus is popular in the church. Some churches, he's popular in some churches. That's why he's popular in this church. Because he gave his life as a ransom for you and I. He gave his life to pay the debt that we owed. He gave his life to conquer the sins that we had committed. He gave his life to rescue us from a hell that we deserved. He gave his life to prepare for us a banquet, a feast in the presence of God our Father. He gave his life to go and prepare a mansion for us in his Father's kingdom. That's why he's popular with us. He sought our welfare. That's why he's named Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins, Matthew 1 tells us. And that's why we celebrate him, because he came and he preached peace to those of us who were far off, Ephesians 2 tells us. Mordecai is just a vague, shadowy picture of this beautiful, glorious, loving, wonderful, self-giving king named Jesus. And by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, he is rescued, delivered, reversed the condition of people who were dead in sin. Not only has he delivered people groups from oppressive empires throughout the history of the world, but more profound than that, he has delivered sinners from death. He has delivered sinners from the coming judgment of God. And he will deliver us all the way to that final feast when we shall be clothed in glory, transformed into his likeness, when we shall see him with our eyes and seeing him be satisfied. There's no Jesus like King Jesus. There's no savior like him. And this morning, if you wish to be delivered from your sins, put your faith in Jesus. This morning, if you wish to be delivered not only from your sins, but perhaps some other circumstance that you know you can't change, put your faith in Jesus. He's never failed yet, and he won't start failing with you. Trust him. He's a good Savior. Beloved, as we go on to the Lord's Supper, let us remember, let us rejoice, let us repent, let me add a fourth thing. Let us anticipate the day when we shall sit with Jesus and eat that true feast. Let's pray together. 
Father in heaven, we thank you so much that in your wisdom, you inspired the book of Esther. You had these words written down for us on whom the end of the ages has come. Words that though written thousands of years ago, seem very much to be responding to the evening news. As we look out into our world, a world that oppresses so many, women, minorities of various sorts. We look out into a world that so often is marked by hatred. We look out into a world where power is abused. We are reminded by Esther that you are the God who delivers, that your kingdom has come and is coming, and in it is nothing but righteousness, that you are the king of that place. And so, Lord, there is no unrighteousness, no injustice. There is no death, no dying. None of those things for you, God. You, God, are the ruler of that place. We long to see you. We long to be with you. We pray, hurry, Lord Jesus, come again. Bring your kingdom and bring us home that we might feast with you forever. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.